Welcome back to Labeled, the stories, rumors, and legends of Tooth & Nail Records. I'm your host, Matt Carter, and today we walk through the all-too-short career of Ivory Line from the point of view of Jeremy Gray, lead singer. So this is one of those bands who accomplished a ton in a short time, and due to the circumstances of reality, didn't have a career that was able to reach its full maturity. And that gives us all this feeling of slight tragedy, but also leaves us with a nostalgic feeling of what might have been or maybe what could still be. So that makes a good podcast. And uh, I felt like this conversation was overdue, and I thoroughly enjoyed connecting with Jeremy and hearing his perspective on the very special but short ride as Ivory Line. And if you didn't catch it yet, Labeled has expanded. There's another feed now, and it's called Labeled Deep Dives. And we're going through the history of Under Oath and how it pertains to the making of their album Voyeurist. We're going song by song on that. And you can check out episode at least zero and then episode one very, very soon. Um, in that feed, you can find it in iTunes or go to labeleduniverse.com uh, and subscribe to that feed as well as this feed. And appreciate all the support. And we're going to keep cranking it out. Got a bunch of big stuff planned this year, so more to come. All right, and here's Jeremy and I. Well, so I think Ivory Line is just such an interesting band because of, um, I think, the era you came in. Uh, there's just a lot of details about it, and you're in such an exciting time of the label and the scene and the genre. But for sure, you know, the most obvious thing about it is, it, and I'll just come out and say it, you're one of those bands that it's like, man, shouldn't they have achieved more? How did they only last that long? Um, I thought they should be big, bigger than they ever were and stuff like that. So it's one of those things that just automatic. I hadn't thought about it in a number of years, but it almost, when I think back of it, because it's like, oh man, there was something tragic about that band. I think Beloved is in a similar spot. It was like, oh, they, they, they should be the Love next big the thing. They should be the next big thing is the way that, that the feeling kind of was and at the time and everything. And so I know you've had a ton of time um, since we've, hung out and probably to process it and have a whole different life. So I'm kind of looking forward to catching up today yeah. and hearing how your before Ivory Line made it and then when they were doing their thing. And then, you know, it's just pretty, this is a pretty simple episode to just like trace the story of. Mm. So mm -hmm. we'll take our time and do it. Um, can we just start all the way back at, um, you know, start all the way back at you, how you got into music and, and how you grew up in a way that led you on a path that would eventually become Ivory Line. Sure. But before I do that, I have to say I loved Beloved, man. They, they really, they uh, helped get me into the scene, so to speak. When I was thinking over, you know, those top tooth and nail bands, solid state bands that really got you excited and took you to a different headspace, right? Like there was a, there's before and after moments with music and they were one of those bands for me. Um, and this, this goes right into like kind of how I got started. I mean, I come from a musical family. I come from What's a the, Do you have a beloved song that you were going to say? Let's just do, we can do your favorite stuff as it comes up. You know, I don't, I don't really have a favorite song. Um, just that whole album failure on. I mean, I just wore that thing out. I, I, I couldn't say a favorite. Um, and I've forgotten all the names by now. Yeah, you know? I, don't, I always forget the names too. Yeah, that, but I just wore that thing out. But I remember there was a day in, um, I think, middle school. I was either in eighth grade or ninth grade 
And I was getting into the scene, you know, I knew I wanted to sing, um, never been in a band before. And there was one day where I heard Me Without You and Thursday. When you're in eighth grade? Yeah. Wow. Okay. How old are you? Like, what year were you born, I guess, is more of the question. I was born in 85. I'm 36, going on 37. Um, So it might have been freshman year. I don't remember. But I heard um, Me Without You's song, Bullets and Binary, from Me To Be Live. heard thursday i don't remember the song but i was just like transported like it was like oh my gosh this is this is something like i need to pursue this music i need to pursue this sound like you know it changed me you know and and what was before that like did you were you already into music or or like and how did you encounter those two a friend a friend was like you got to check out these these bands um i was kind of late getting into the tooth and nail world like i didn't i didn't catch on with grade is late (laughs) well you know like i didn't catch on with like mxpx or any like the original you know those were kind of you know the original tooth and nail bands i would i was like i cut my teeth on you know me without you and um as cities burn um you know even emory we looked up to you guys and um, there, those you really look up to those bands that are right in front of you, right? You know, in front of you, yeah. So yep. you guys, Terminal came up right. I mean, right in front of us, like one year apart. Um, but what were you listening to before that day that you were transported to? And I, I mean, that's my favorite language of all when you're talking about any media or art is when you forget where where you are and you feel sure. that you are somewhere else, like sure. you take to a place. And the fact that you can do that with an earbud or two earbuds can be transported that is a huge huge deal Amen. Like, yeah. it's a big deal but what were you doing what was the music you were consuming before that that wasn't as you know tra- transportive <laughs> i mean you know i was i started getting into more scene music like blink 182 you know way back in the day dude ranch that album you know i got into that i was i got really into like the more emo side like dashboard confessional so i didn't know him as further seems forever but I, I got it at Dashboard, and man, Chris Caraba is, I don't know that I would have been me without him. Like, I sang along with him so much, like cutting and going higher and higher and, you know, working out your tone and, and hitting those notes and holding and sustaining those notes like he did so well. And I just wore out every Dashboard. Um, saves the day. And that's seventh grade stuff? You know, I, in there, right in there. And you're trying to train yourself as a singer in seventh yeah. and eighth grade. I was, yeah, I listened to the U's and some of those more mainstream uh, acts. Um, trying to remember, I had a whole corn phase, Limp Biscuit. Mm, I mean, yeah. I went hard <laughs> into yeah, that. Um, yeah, so yeah, I was, you know, like I said, I came from a musical family, so I was always singing. You right, and grew up in a, a home that you know sang worship songs and whatever pop songs, the whole deal. But um, just really felt that desire to to develop my voice and, and get, I knew I wanted to be in a band. So I knew I was going to have to get my skills to a level that someone would want me, right? So that's how I did it, singing along, you know, singing along with those bands. That's so crazy. It's fun. Because a lot of people don't have that mindset you know, at a, at a young age, like you're training for something. It's just, I, mm-hmm. you know, like that, that sticks out to me a little bit, but you, you knew you had, there was something that you needed to, you were practicing yeah, on, on, intentionally. 
and I don't, I won't say that I knew that I was going to pursue it as some sort of career or, you know, I thought I had what it took to be a professional singer. I wouldn't, it wasn't that, it wasn't that deep or lengthy of a goal or it was more of, I just knew I wanted to be in a band, <laughs> you know, I wanted to be in a local band that was good and, and have fun and, and write songs and rock out. Right. Like thrash around. I, I knew that I knew I wanted to be a part of the scene. I was already, I was going to shows here in Tyler. We actually have an amazing scene here in Tyler, which is, you know, what is that? 80 miles uh, east of Dallas or something. Yeah. yeah. But we've produced, you know, people, Isley came mm-hmm. out of Tyler. Um, you know, we've, we came out of Tyler fit for a King who's still huge in the metalcore scene came out of Tyler after we did. Um, we've had ties to say anything. Yeah. Uh, is Java he, jazz, the club there. Is Java that jazz was 35 minutes South or, mm-hmm. uh, excuse me, West and Canton. And can and there was a church that we would play in Tyler at least a church mm-hmm. gigs and stuff. There was other was there venues there though. Yeah, mostly churches. You know, you, different ones would would rise and fall, wanting to get a, get the kids into their building, and you know, and there was one called the Vineyard. It was at the Vineyard Church. They called it Brewtones. We probably p- played more than there than anywhere else. You know, coffee and music, Brewtones, um, hometown shows, right? So, um, just so many memories of that. You were going to shows at as an eighth and ninth grade. Yeah, so seeing seeing bands like Isley when they were young and already crafting such amazing songs, like they've been making amazing songs since some of the members were twelve or eleven, like which is just stupid, you know, mm-hmm. as Aaron would say. <laughs> yes, I would um, say it. Um, and that inspired me. Like I get inspired by great craft. Like I think, like most musicians, most creative people, that's what gets us going. When you hear something beautiful or something rad or a riff, that's like amazing you're like man i want to do this i want to i want to see what i can create so that led me to want to you know throw my hat in the ring so to speak um and so when i tried out i tried out for one band ever it ended up being Ivoryline. so that story was kind of funny they posted they were looking for a singer on a forum when those still existed online it was at a it was a, a venue forum it was called the revelation room um, and they posted looking for a singer. I think they put like emo, hardcore, rock, you know, genres, a reply here. And I said, I'm interested in trying out. Long story short, I went and tried out and we were called, we were a different name at the time. We were called Dead End Driveway. And like uh, we were, uh, I started that in my junior year. They were all from other bands. So they kind of all quit their local bands and tried to form like a super local band <laughs> is what they were trying to do. So I was the new guy, right? So the, nobody ever heard of me. I'd never been in a band before. So I just went to this house where we used to practice and they played this song they wrote and they're like, they let me hear it like I think two or three times. They were like, okay, write something, sing something to it. So I did. And, you know, they made me go outside and wait in the hall like three times wow, while they like deliberated. The real, yeah. yeah. While they deliberated, I could hear him like whispering. I don't know if he's, I don't know. No, I really like him. Yeah, no, he's oh the guy, gosh. you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And and one was like, no, we were looking for more of like, a, you know, a guy that can scream. He's more like emo. And anyway, long story short, they're like, yeah, let's do it. Let's, let's make this happen. So that was in like May of 2003. We didn't play our first show till December. So we practiced for eight months to play before we played our first show, wrote like six songs. We had a full set. And Dusty wanted me to mention this detail. Mm-hmm. Dusty, our guitar player, he uh, his his one of his favorite bands of all time is Embodiment, and okay. he learned his chops. I mean, Dusty can play, and he learned his chops on guitar from 
you know, shredding to embodiment. And our first show in Tyler ever as Dead in Driveway was with embodiment. Awesome. Because he, he booked them. And it was actually their last show ever. It was their farewell show. Wow. So we got, we just did this. We had that touch point with embodiment. Wow, that's special. It was very special for him in particular, which is why I didn't even remember it was their last show. He had to remind me. He was like, yeah, it was Embodiment's last show when we played it. So just really cool. Especially That's really him. cool. Yeah. And yeah. and Dusty's a really, really special guy. I want to talk mm-hmm. more about him, but um, he's still in Tyler, right? And the brewery is in yep. Tyler. So yep. like that same scene is just so cool. Like Dusty's one of those people that deeply cares about um, – like that connection thing and that like you can tell that he's deeply connecting to all the things he's involved in and these scenes and stuff like that and the music itself and he's right. in Tyler now working at a brewery and he takes it very seriously and cares about it he did a brew for Emory is uh, mm-hmm. shallow in shallow seas we ale mm-hmm. um and and made it so and cool. sent us the beer and thinks about it and talks about it and it's the same stuff as like that brewery stuff is similar to guitar he's so into the guitar and all that and you know, just that, that I just think that's cool that he's still in Tyler doing things that are, you know, important and are technical that he can deeply connect to and stuff like that. And I bet you that was really, really cool to have your favorite band and then be their farewell. Like all that meaning is just like really packed in there. That's awesome. 100%. And yeah, it, that's that rise of him starting at the brewery, you know, as a just a helper, like an assistant, you know, and then learning the craft. And he's just been shown a lot of favor, you know, and he's just worked really hard and rose to like assistant brewer. And now he's like the tie, their head guy. Like it's him and one other guy, the, the headmaster brewers or whatever they call them. Master brewers is what they call them. And you're, it's exactly right. It's funny because he, he takes his craft with crafting yeah. beer so seriously. And he's always loved beer. So that's just a great fit for him. It's like a dream come true. So it's been real rewarding to see him step into that. Um, and just be fulfilled. And there's such a community that we're, you know, beer is about community, right? Totally. It brings people together, just like coffee, you know, coffee. Yeah, it's great, but you, you do it because you want to talk to people and you want to experience that warmth and mm-hmm. energy. So, and that's what it's about for him. And he's not a real talkative guy, as you know, but he loves to be around people and mm-hmm. he loves to observe and watch. And when he does talk, people listen because he doesn't talk very much. So he's deep. It's yep. deep. Like he's deeply thinking about the guitar right. and the sound and the the thing, the mechanics of he's deeply absorbing things. That's really That's cool. Right. Yeah. That's right. So he's our deep introvert. Yeah. You, you got to have introvert. at least one in the band. I think everybody can't be wild extroverts. <laughs> you just get on each other's nerves all the time. So he was our, uh, you know, our rock, our, you know, all that you want some peace, look at Dusty, go sit with him for a little while, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The biggest, good sweetest teddy bear ever. What? So what year is that, that, that embodiment show was? That would have been December, 2003. In December, 2003. And you are what grade at that? Are you I'm in a high junior school? So? in high school. A yeah. Junior in high school. Full on to sports and everything else, you know, just trying to fit in the band thing. And Yeah. Okay, so what happens next after that? Then you did that. Was that show memorable? Like it was good. You had fans. Yeah. Like it, it was yeah. a good. Like it was a good experience. So yes, like, thankfully it wasn't. We fell on our face and embarrassed ourselves in front of embodiment. It, it went fine. It was a great starting point. And then we just started gaining traction, and we were playing as many local shows as we could. I already mentioned some of the the venues. You know, there's one called the Living Room here in Tyler. If any Tyler people listen to this, the Living Room, Brew Tones. Um, 
think you mentioned Java Jazz, um, the Revelation Room. So just started doing our thing, you know. What was your identity um, in the locals? Like the bands were all this way, but we were the one band that was this way. I just think we took it seriously. Like we we were trying to be something, and I don't I don't want to not in like an arrogant way. Like we just wanted to do it with excellence, right? And and we we poured ourselves into it. Like when we're on stage, we threw down. Like we cared about hitting every note. We cared about being tight but we cared about what are they experiencing? Like, are they experiencing something fun to lean into and get swept up in? We wanted people to sing our lyrics. We wanted people to sing lyrics that were going to uplift them, you know, that were going to matter in their lives and hearts. And, you know, so you said swept away and uplift there. And we already had the transport a few minutes ago. So all that is like words. (laughs) I mean, those are significant words, you know, you wanted to, you care about people's experience and that they were swept away, you know, yeah. so to transport them in that same way. So passion, man, I think it just came down to passion. Like we didn't want, we wanted, we kind of had this like mission that it, it doesn't matter if we're playing for a hundred or 10 or five, we've done it all right. We're going to give those five mm-hmm. kids. If only five showed up, we're going to throw down just like they're important. And we're playing for a thousand. We hadn't done that at that point, but eventually play, play for a thousand. And that's just something that really stuck and kind of became part of our DNA. We, we really cared about, about delivering um, a, a fun and, but excellent experience. And you were getting that from not the, so much the other local bands, but band touring bands that had come through, like you'd seen shows that were engaging in that way. I think we always compared ourselves to people who were already signed. You know, like we weren't really comparing ourselves to other local bands. They they kind of did that to us and would get mad at us. Like they thought, oh, y'all are monopolizing the scene. All, all anybody cares about is Dead End Driveway or Ivory Line or whatever. And we're like, we're just doing our thing. Like we're not trying to have some kind of local beef here. You know, we, we, we're shooting up here. We're not, we're not, you know, we're not looking at the amateur level trying to emulate that. We're looking at the people who are doing this and making it happen as a career and recording albums and being successful that's what we're trying to emulate those are the you know, steps where- that's an interesting tie-in because the band i've seen by far the most that meets that description of any band and i maybe i don't have the haven't seen all the bands but from where i come from yeah up in seattle of the local bands um this has a tie-in but acceptance was no. like the most dominant Mm-hmm. professional band in a local scene that you could ever imagine. Like it yeah. was completely professional way above anybody. Right. And it was just like ska band, this and goofy band that and weekend <laughs> this. And, you know, and they were just like, it wasn't even, it had made no sense that they were a local band, but right. but they were, they were a dominant local band. So I think that's probably, you know, pretty similar. Yeah. Well, we could talk for the next 30 minutes about acceptance. They're just incredible. Right. I mean, they're amazing. That that album, Phantoms, I mean, I yeah. wore that thing out like huge inspiration to me. I think to me personally, more than anyone else in the band, I was I was the biggest fan. Um, so fast forward when we, we were like, hey, Aaron, we're doing Vessel. We're like, do you think Jason from Acceptance would sing on one of our songs? And he was like, dude, I'll text him. I was like, really, you're going to text him? Like you're just gonna text him and just say, "Hey, why, there's this band," and he's like, "Yeah, I'll just text him. We're we're cool. Like he'll be he'll be cool." I don't know if you remember that part of the story. So we tracked it all, 
and I recorded it all, I recorded the whole song. We left not knowing what was going to happen. And like when we started getting back the mixes, he that's when we heard it for the first time with Jason singing on the healing. first track of the record and I was just honestly mind blown I couldn't believe that it had happened um total dream come true right so yeah to have, to have a guy you look up to and in some ways emulate your style around to to be singing on one of your songs and and do such an incredible job like he nailed it of course and just a, it was just a fun mesh to see wow my voice is going and now jason from acceptance and then back and forth like i was like falling out dude just falling down <laughs> freaking out as you probably remember me doing in the studio i get too excited that's um you know i think that's such a cool thing and it's bold in the way that like there's guest vocals but like it's it's the first track or it's, and it's the most popular track on spotify and it's like it's the big track and it's got both vocals on it and i think that is such a cool choice like i think that really is a cool bold and good you know choice to do that yeah and i felt the same way i felt like they were the ones who and you've done a whole podcast about it they were the ones that almost made it to that upper echelon with major labels and for all those there was just fumbles right that happened that for some reason the stars didn't align on that one and everybody was like dang that was a missed you know, opportunity because they had it, you know, they picked the wrong and not them, the, the people around them picked the wrong first single and it was just hard uphill battling from there. So yeah, that I, was, it was a, a super surprise that it was because everybody was thinking, well, this is, the, this is it. Like from oh, our yeah. scene when they're going to go in and they got the, and I was talking to them like before we signed, mm-hmm. we were cool. And it's like, they're on this major label. We hadn't even signed yet. And I was, I remember talking to, let's see who it must've been. I don't remember probably Garrett or something. I was doing a phone call with them. I was like, well, how's it work with the major label? Is that, and they're like, oh, it's going to be so great. And they were just, they were just saying all this stuff and it sounded like the best stuff in the world. And it wasn't, right. it didn't take that much longer until they became one of the stories of, and that's why major labels are bad. Like it didn't yeah. make sense until you saw it happen to a, a band that you knew had no, would have had no problem on any indie label right. dominating. Yep. And they were something like mixed up in this big, and they were in just all these big worlds that were just over right. everybody's head. And then you get like, it's like you get shelved or all this weird politics came into it. And it's just, right. it was like, a, it was it was definitely, I think of it, the, that story is a tragedy. Yeah. And, you know, just having him be on our song and participate just made me feel very honored and special. It's like, I want, it's just amazing that we did something together, right? Yeah. We never even met. But we are our creativity, our our voices cross paths in a way that's now exists forever. So. And it's in people's minds, like you know, it's got yeah. um, you know, it's got one point six million plays on just Spotify of people who are having a moment with that. And it's right. you, you know what I mean? Like that's so cool. I don't know. It's it is like that's a lot of people deeply taking that in and hearing your voices together. So and you were never in yeah. the same room. I mean, that's, that's a crazy right. thing. That's right. It's wild. Well, let's get jump back though. Yeah. 
still. So how do you go from being that local band to making the transition and, and getting the attention of, you know, tooth and nail? So, you know, we kept playing, kept writing songs. And you, as you know, you're a prolific songwriter. They just get better as you go on. If you're doing it right, you get better at songwriting. And, and thankfully we did. We kept pushing ourselves. We had good influences around us. We had a lot of member changes. Um, when we finally made it to Wes, Wesley Hart, who's our, you know, our drummer and ended up being our guy for Ivory Line, we'd already had, um, we'd already had three others. Um, so he's our fourth and he's the one who stuck. So we played and, and I think it was, would it have been December of 2005, we changed our name and we had like a, a debut show as Ivory Line. And that's where Wes saw us in the audience. Wes, uh-huh. our drummer, watched us play. And we obviously had a drummer at that point, but then he was like, oh, they were pretty good. <laughs> like, I wasn't expecting that from this man in Tyler. And that kind of planted a seed in him. He wasn't even living in Tyler at the time, but he was living across on the East Coast. And then it somehow made it back to him. I, I think it was a God thing that, um, hey, that band, they're looking for a drummer. And he was like, really? Like, okay. And he just filed it away. He ended up moving back to Tyler like a few months later. We were still looking and the timing was right. You know, his skills, our desires matched and he tried out and the rest was history. Right. So um, we kept going. We have a lot of people that helped us. We started getting a bunch of like festival style shows in Plano. There was like this absolutely incredible indie scene in Plano. And these two guys, there were others involved, but two main guys, uh, Mike Zemer and Michael Henry, who we called Michael. Um, and their company was called Third Stream Productions. And they just build these massive indoor, like festivals, really, but all local bands. And we knew we needed to get on that, right? It's two hours up the road in Plano. We got on one and, you know, people seemed to like us. And we started hitting those up more and more. And that crowd there, man, it just got nuts. Like those kids, like, I couldn't believe the response. Like, they're just screaming our songs and words like so loud. I can't even hear myself more so than even our hometown. And so really that helped that scene really built us up. And that's where um, Chad and Jimmy Ryan, Chad Johnson and Jimmy Ryan came and saw us. Like that was their scout us show. It was at the Plano center. They, they traveled. Yeah. Wow. That's see, that's big time days for tooth and nails. Like, you're out there scouting, flying around, <laughs> checking out bands in 2005, you know. <laughs> taking us to P.F. Chang, man. <laughs> the big leagues. Yeah. But, yeah, so we were, you know, we were nervous. We knew they were coming, you know, and we were, wow. you know, being scouted and needed to play well. And, you know, it went good. And then they took us to P.F. Chang's after. And they're just the best dudes, you know, Jimmy yeah, I, and Chad. We yeah, felt like sure. we got the dream team of A&R because – we got Chad, but Jimmy was like his under A&R or whatever at the time. Like they were training him to be a, a full-fledged A&R. And so we got both of them for a while there. We were, they were both caring about us. And I remember them sitting us down at the table and they both kind of gave their spiel about what they thought about our performance. And they, Jimmy went one by one. It was like, Jeremy, it was just, you're like, <laughs> You Tell me like the whole a, thing. I wish I could remember it better. He's like, you were just like a deer. There's so much just grace. And you're just like, you know, <laughs> nimble up there. And 
And he, he's like, Dusty, you're like this powerful ox. Nobody knows what <laughs> you know. Like, <laughs> That's hilarious A and R talk. Keep going. Oh, but he, it was so Jimmy Ryan doing it. Incredible. It was so encouraging, man. You know, because you're maybe I don't know how much you struggle with this, but as as a musician, as an artist, whatever you want to call it, as a creative, you struggle with you know negativity too. Like I'm not I'm not good enough, or I'm not as good as them, or I'll never be, you know, I'll never have a voice like that guy. So hearing them give us like unadulterated encouragement. That's really what it was. Putting uh-huh. courage into us. It ma- it that's gave cool. us, it gave us that fuel to be like, we can do this, you know, like we can do this. These guys are the real deal. And they're mm. telling us we have what it takes. It the only something. other, the only other back, the only other thing you have to keep in mind is, are these people full of shit and they're trying to take advantage of us? That'd be the right. only other option that you sure. ha- that one would have to consider. And I certainly sure. those guys don't do, you know, those guys don't do that, but you're right. When somebody like that's a world changer moment because right. you've been believing in yourself the best you can, right. but your self negativity is your only way to improve. So you have to beat yourself up constantly. Like you have mm-hmm. to like the disposition of seeing mm-hmm. the flaws, right? That is what you have to live in. Right, And then when you get an outside encouragement, that's not your aunt or whatever, but in fact, it's <laughs> Jimmy Ryan and Chad mm-hmm. Johnson, and you know they know what they're talking about. Right. And if they're not trying to like take advantage of you, right. then you have no choice but to update your model and say, you know what? I am like a graceful as a deer. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right, man. We knew who their bands were. We knew that Chad had Under Oath and all yeah. these bands that are like the biggest on the label that's at the time. Cool. You know, so we were like, man, this is incredible. So that that was a really special moment. You know, that dinner, that scouting dinner, if you will. And I'm, I'm super grateful to both those guys. We love them so much. Ended up having great relationships with both of them, obviously. I wish we would have had more time with both of them, you know, because Chad only lasted, I think, another, I want to say year and a half. Like he was involved with their Came a Lion, but he was not, he was gone by the time 2010. So I think we had him for like a year and a half. And then Jimmy similar story you know we got them at the tail end of their their walks with tooth and nail but glad we got them man it, it felt to your point like that when tooth and nail is just everything was just coming to a head it was five yeah so it was like special. that's the year of just i mean the releases that year are just insane and so mm-hmm. now those guys who are doing releasing all those releases that year are flying to see you and then validating you on that level yeah was that was that a done deal? Like it's like we don't we don't we're not getting other. We're just going to do this. Was that clear? You know, so honestly, we did signing to Tooth and Nail was always kind of the path we saw. Um, it really was, and and the other guys' uh, history with Tooth and Nail was longer and deeper. Like they were just had been in had been they'd known about it for longer than I had. So it's not that we weren't open to other opportunities, but. It ended up working out like we had a little bit of interest from other labels, um, but nothing substantial. And we we're like, who cares? We don't care. We're we're happy with like the sound of the tooth and nail is a dream. So, um, yeah, it was kind of a no brainer for us. It just felt like the the right step in the path. But that happened quickly, like they got a deal and you just signed it. And what, you know? Yeah, I don't remember how I feel like that was probably an August show, you know, the worst dripping hottest 120 degrees in texas and then i think by that december we had signed and they announced it in that january um so january of 2007 so we signed december of 2006 they announced it january 
the, so. um, also worth mentioning there is those hot spots of talent. You know, I'm sure there's other talent there. If there's the local bands and the fans that knew how to respond, like that whole thing was going good. And Mike Zemer right. is a big part of that third string. But Mike yep. Zemer, you know, very talented guy in his own way as a promoter. And I, if people don't know, he's you know oh, South yeah. by So What is him. Furnace Fest is him. He's the he's the promoter. For the the you know for Dallas and Texas you know mm-hmm. all these shows over the years he's been he's had his hand on just an infinite amount of shows that you you know you didn't ever see his name on probably right. but right so so he's got I don't know him that well um he he, he was the renting us the room for the Bad Christian Conference so I mean I've been around him some but yeah if you've been around him more what do you think while you know while we're on the topic what's special about that guy because he's had you know great success <laughs> and people really like him also. You know, it's hard to say. I know he he had a vision. He's one of those guys who knew what he wanted and went after it, right? And he he worked really hard. He was he's a grinder, you know. Um, and they he knew how to surround himself with people with complementary skills. You know, they him and Mike Henry really dove into MySpace and the promoting and the codes behind that, even getting into the bots and like the auto promotion and they just learned and, and honed their skills and they, they treated bands really well, right? Like you want to mm-hmm. play shows where the promoters are kind and they care mm-hmm. about you and they're it's not like they using you. They yeah. care about the music. They they're obviously fans. like it or they wouldn't yeah. be putting these bills together. I mean, you know what I mean? It's like there's promoters that are trying to make money at venues. Absolutely. That's like the worst people on earth. And then there's people yeah. that are such big fans that they are promoters. Yeah. <laughs> they and look they, the same, so you can't tell. So true. They they poured forth their blood, sweat, and tears for bands they cared about, you know, and we were one that they did that with. Memphis Mayfire, who's a band that's gone on to be really big, which came out of that scene and, and with that help. O Sleeper was around that scene too. Um, yeah, they're just great guys, you know. They're cool. humble, but they you know, they worked really hard and, and, you know, the timing was right. The, 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 the kids, that scene was right. There's so many young people in that community that just, you know, latched on to the music scene. It just really exploded there. It, it's kind of an anomaly. It was, it was really special. So it's 2006 and time to, you know, make, yeah. what did you make? They, there came a line in 2006 or seven, then? 2007. So, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, um, was you know shopping or, or being shopped, I guess, to producers, and we knew who Aaron Sprinkle was, and we you know thought that was kind of a pipe dream, and um, but we were hopeful, right? And and so we they were reaching out to different producers and had some interest. They were trying to push us to this one guy. I can't even remember the name. His name um, he had done the Jonesetta record, the first one, which I absolutely love. Yeah, popularity. That, awesome. that yeah. album is incredible, and and um, we were just like, eh, we're not. We're not really interested. He was a new guy, and that was like the first record he'd done for Tooth and Nail. We were just like, eh. So I think the way it happened was there was a, a Jones that his manager was somebody we crossed paths, paths, crossed paths with a few times, and we were hoping he'd kind of like sign us as as you know one of his bands. And he was like, oh, no, I'm not interested. He'd like, you guys need to do this and this. Like he'd give us constructive feedback. We're like, okay, cool, man. And um we put out this song called parade, which was one that um, had really caught on in the Plano scene for some reason. One of the anthems that people were loved. And he told people at tooth and nail or was there or something. You all need to listen to the song. Parade. 
So it was going around the office, and one day, Aaron Sprinkle was walking through the office while somebody else was playing that song from R.E.P. And it, this is how I heard it. He said, who's that? I want to do that. I want to do this record. Well, who is this band? Like, it was that kind of serendipitous, you know, meant-to-be moment. And so we got, a, I guess, a call or, and said, hey, Aaron, Sprinkle heard you and wants to do your record. And we were like, are you kidding right now? Like, are you kidding? Like, this is what we would have dreamed for. And that's how it That's how it kind of came about. So That's cool. And so did you have touring opportunities much in the meantime? Or does it make the record and then you started doing stuff? You know, we did some small Did you stuff. do a cornerstone in there? A lot of times oh, yeah. bands will do a cornerstone while they are Absolutely. signed, Tooth and Nail Day, and then the record comes out. Did you have Absolutely. that? Absolutely. We did indeed. Yeah, we had a... Because we already recorded the EP, a little six-song EP called The Life You Have. And that was the first thing we'd recorded that was good, <laughs> like actually good. The rest was just, you know, leading up to good. Um, and so Tooth and Nail had a lot more printed. They gave us a sticker, you know, that says Tooth and Nail Records debut album coming next year or whatever, mm-hmm. coming coming 2008. And we just, you know, tried to sling those things as much as we could at Cornerstone. We played that summer. Um, but we did a, a couple you know, small things that we kind of did ourselves. We didn't do anything like worthwhile to mention really with anybody big. I wish we would have, but it, it was more that kind of stuff happened more after, after there came a line came out and Oh, fun fact. So this week, February, uh, there came a line and came out February 5th, 2008. So we're almost on the anniversary for four days from hitting the anniversary. It's year 14 since it came out. Golly, 2008, 14 yeah. years ago. That's something else. Yeah, that's fun timing. Well, so what's a memorable track or two on their parades on there? Um, on Spotify, it looks like the most popular one is Be Still and Breathe. But what, yeah. what sticks out to you on, on that album? That's a good question. Um, you know, I could say different ones stick out for different reasons. Um you know, one one thing that sticks out is we, after we'd done the record and it had just come out, we started getting like a keyed into the Christian rock radio scene. And like, I don't remember how we found out about it. I guess it was Tamara at Tooth and Nail started talking to us and started sending us a chart here and there. And, I, and we, I remember I was in my, my uh, girlfriend at the time, now wife's apartment, and we were looking at that we we're like this would be so cool if we could just make this chart someday and like no joke matt like two weeks later we were on the chart and we were just like wow. what just happened like seriously what just happened this wasn't even on our radar um what song yeah i'm trying to remember what the first one was um i'm so bad i remember which ones we put out we put out four singles from that album three of them went number one which still to this day blows my mind we put out Be Still and Breathe, Days End, uh, Hearts and Minds, and Remind Me I'm Alive. So those were the four singles. Uh, Hearts and Minds was the only one that didn't go to number one. It peaked at number three. Um, so I think that first single was Be Still and Breathe, if I'm remembering right. Um, so it was just so many moments were just like we had this goal. Like it was like if we could just be on the chart, like that's a goal. And then we hit it and passed it. And it, I didn't feel like we really did anything. Like we, we put out the record, <laughs> but it's like we were in the machine. Like Tooth and Nail yeah. were, yeah. you know, they knew what they were doing in, in a, lot of, a lot of those ways. And 
it, it was just great to see people were liking the album, right? I mean, it's that simple. We were encouraged because they were like, oh yeah, you guys are, you're selling well. Like everybody's so happy with your first week numbers. And, you know, we weren't like those kind of guys. I feel like y'all were, y'all are so smart about the business side of things. I feel like we were more on this romantic ride, you know? And we got smarter as we went on, but it wasn't like, man, if we could do 2000 the first week, that'd be pretty good, you know, or whatever. We didn't really have that kind of stuff, but, but just to hear people say, no, this is like a really, your album's doing better than almost every debut we've had. Like, that was just like, what? Like that was, that was the craziest thing because that's a long time trend line where debuts kept being more and more successful. Like, like, uh, not to take away from you, but lots of bands oh, no. have that in a row from like 2002 until some day, 2009. It was like they, there was certain, ba- I mean, because every band wasn't that way, but the debuts kept getting bigger and bigger. It's right. like, it was unheard of to sell 2000 records at right. some point of a debut album on the first right. week because nobody's, how could anybody, like it's such a, a stunning stat when your debut has right. a huge first week because it's your how could anybody know? And it's an indie right. band on an indie label. Right. And it just speaks to that moment that you said. It's just, it was a machine. <laughs> and that's not like, and it's still only the best band at the best times doing the best stuff that the machine even works on. Because if you look at the whole thing across a bunch of years, like across two or three decades, it starts to like, oh, this was bad in that time. And this was bad in that time. And this was bad. Like the, mm-hmm. all the frustrations and things not working together is the norm. But mm-hmm. there's this one point where it's like the genres exploded. The yep. label's on point. Everybody yep. at the label is awesome at their job. They have the best possible distro, major label partner. Yeah. The funding of this, the radio. T- you can just go to radio and just yeah. get on number one. You, if you can just give them the song, of, and Aaron Sprinkle will record it, and you go to the radio. Why wouldn't, it, why wouldn't a, you do that? It's so easy. Right. It's like so clear what you're supposed to do. <laughs> and it's a sound people want, right? Yeah, That's right, the yeah. thing. You can't predict that. Like The label can think this is the band. But it just doesn't resonate with people. Like, it's not the right moment. Like, we, wa- we watched a documentary about um, Alanis Morissette. When she hit and came out, something reverberated across the United States and the world. She just had the sound, the songs, the lyrics, the energy that just resonated with everybody in that moment. And those kind of things are just almost magic. Like, you can't make it happen. And I'm not comparing us at all to that i'm just saying there are elements of that you can't control right it's not enough to have a machine it has to hit people at the right time and you know some some bands have that sound but it's too late right they're just too late or too early the label sucks or somebody did something wrong or it's too early yeah that's that was too progressive but five years later that same sounding band blows up right yeah so we were grateful to have some of that right place right time going on you know i feel like in 2008, that's when sales really started to curb, you know, and, and right we, before, we barely yeah. caught the the tail end. And, and, when to, and by 2010, by the time our next record came out, it was already a different landscape. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, definitely. So it wasn't it wasn't as fun of a story when that happened. Yeah, well, it's, it, it's weird. Yeah, I guess because because I mean, it's 2005 and six when you're getting going. But by the time the record comes out and you hit that, you're right. That really is at the like mm-hmm. where things start to get weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, yeah, was it, what was it like on the first record working with Sprinkle? Incredible, incredible. So it just felt like 
you, you have the feels, right? We just had the feels like we were riding that wave. We're riding that energy of, oh my gosh, we just got signed. Oh my gosh, we're on tooth and nail. Oh man, we're in Seattle and they gave us an apartment. <laughs> They're paying us to be here. They're paying us to craft our music and put out great songs with this, this mastermind guy that we've looked up to and Sprinkle who we do his catalog, right? We know what he's done. And, you know, and Sprinkle's, um, it takes a while to kind of like get to know him a little bit. Like it's not that he's, you like him right away. Right. But he's got layers. He's got he, so many. <laughs> so we, we're feeling him out, you know, and, and I just, I just really wanted to be friends with him. You know, like it, I just looked up to him. I wanted to learn from him and, you know, truthfully, like I kind of vacillated between being really confident as a vocalist and then not confident. And, so he he wasn't overly complimentary. I don't think he 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 was not critical though at all. He's a very build you up kind of guy, but he would he was he was sparse with his compliments, but when he would like say something, he was like, "Oh my gosh, your voice on that take was so cool." Like those simple statements would just fill me up so much and um, I just came to really, I feel like we meshed really well and it's been awesome cause I've been able to hear him talk on, you know, labeled and other podcasts through the years where he's felt the same about us. And that's just been a dream come true. So I like text him afterwards. I'm like, dude, we know what we experienced with you, but to hear you say it was meaningful and special and like, it, it's, a, you'll, it's mention it, you'll mention it. Like it's that important. That's I'm so it blows me away that you you mention oh, us. Wow. Cause you right, you only have your side in it to get it unadulterated from him, not not around us. Like he's talking to you about every band he's ever done to hear him even mention our name. I'm just like, man, that's incredible. Like what an incredible blessing, what an incredible opportunity to be able to work with him and, and form a relationship with him. Um, so it was it was rad, it was special. We we meshed, we clicked right away. Um, and without a doubt, he took us somewhere that we wouldn't have been able to go. You know, that's what a producer does. They, you know, it's like they unlock you to a whole nother level, right? And push you to be something that. How, how did he do that? I mean, now when you look back on it, like, how did that happen? Like, those were your, I mean, you played the stuff like it was your songs. Yeah. You know. You point the microphone. What did he do? <laughs> He instills belief. He he's such a masterful arranger, and he brings these ideas that um, you wouldn't have thought of. You know, he just kind of has this deep well of inspiration that happens. I love the way he works because it reminded me of me. He would he would work like this, you know, and he talks about it all the time um, in waves of inspiration. There'd be a whole six hour day where he's just you know kind of you know head down on the phone or whatever. He's not, it's not that he's not doing his job. He's just not riding that wave. Right. Um, so he just helped, he just helped us go whenever we hit those places, those kind of magical places, it would just like, it's, it's like you're catching the wave on a surfboard and just being launched. Yeah. And you're like, man, this is an awesome thing to ride. You know, waves um, is a good way to look at that. And there's, you know, there's deep levels to the, how waves inter- relate with reality and sound and everything, oh, but, man. but, yeah. but when you catch, um, you know, and there's all the, 
the down part of the waves have to be there too. But sprinkle would just makes these deepest waves where he's doing al- almost nothing. And then the hyper engagement when it comes yeah. is so much more yeah. than you could ever, Im- ever imagine yeah. that it more than makes up for what was the, you know, that what was that down part of that wave where That's it right. seemed like he wasn't paying attention at all. And then all of a sudden the deep compliment, the the yeah. great idea, the question you would have never thought to ask that unlocks something, and it's and it's like you you know that he's seeing you, and you know that he's hearing you, yeah. and then yeah. that just opens up everything. And he, it's weird that he has that ability. It's like why don't you just do that all day every day? But yeah. you can't you can't do that all you day. You can't manufacture it. And that's right. Yeah. And you can tell he truly believed in you know our songs. You can tell when he believes in 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 who he's recording and and us as people and that, you know, he helped me just go to a different place with my vocals. Like, he's like, you can do that even better. You know, it was always very encouraging. He's like, you have one, you have the take in you hit it again. And he was right. Like, so it, to your point, it just took you to that place. It just helped you rise to your best, you know? And, and it, he just built on that. When I first heard the first song, he comped the vocals and it was like done. It was the song that ended up being bravery on the album. And I listened, we listened to it, of course, you know, in there on the compound full blast. We're just falling out. They're just, we're just losing our minds because uh, it sounded so good. And we didn't know what to expect. We never worked with a, you know, a name producer, if you want to, whatever you want to call it. So once we heard like the first taste of what we were creating together, we were sold. Like we were just like, oh my gosh, this is something special. Yeah, we knew the songs as we had. Um, perform them and, and written them, but there's something special when kind of that sixth member comes into the mix. That's how and, everybody says about Sprinkle. It's like hey, he's yeah. in our band. He's the sixth member of our band. Yeah, and he and I, he likes that, right? He likes yeah. to. And then be still and breathe. He really took that somewhere special with the vocal, just vocals at the beginning. I can't remember if we had that idea. If that was we've had it before. If that was all Sprinkle, but I know that the idea of having like the four part harmony at the beginning, just blasting vocals was him. And so when we were recording it and when we heard it for the first time, we're like, man, that's just sick. So cool. Everything they said about you, everything they've known was wrong. So those kind of moments, you know, are, are the things that stick out with that album and just, there's just something about having that purpose where you're in this space, you're in Seattle, your your whole focus is I'm going to make, we are going to make together in our synergy the absolute best songs, best piece, album as we can. And so just waking up those mornings, like I don't know that I've ever had a more clear and unified yeah. sense of purpose and meaning. Like wow. I know what I'm here to do. And I'm going to do good. it. But um, you're at the compound with Aaron Sprinkle in 2008. I mean, what, no distractions. Yeah. yeah right. It's just, no, yeah. I mean, me, I, I, there was distractions, but I was just like, I'm here for this and the coffee. Awesome. Like that's all that matters. So it was a special time. That's a really, really cool experience to have as your first record at this oh, time. And, and so it's already, you know, like, like already I'm feeling like, and I asked you a, a little about this before, but we know the story in soon from where we are right now in the story. So from that point, 
and we'll go forward into touring and the next record. But I asked you earlier, what struggle did the band have then? You know, like spoil it for me. But what is <laughs> what was the thing that you weren't able to overcome? If we just jump right to that, like it sounds the yeah. story sounds so magical so far. You know, you can't. I don't know that we can pinpoint it to one thing. We we had. Right after we finished recording, actually, we weren't even done recording There Came a Lion, and one of our members flew home um, and basically started the process that led to him quitting. And it was, um, I don't know, I don't want to speak to the exact details because it's been so long, I would get it wrong. But basically, he felt like he needed to leave and, and be with be with his girlfriend and focus on that. Um, and it, it's those kind of hits that you're like, man, are we going to be able to overcome this? You know, cause you're such a brotherhood, you know, you're banded together and you, you're in the van on a, on a mission. That's what really, you know, puts you together, um, unites you. So we had things like that and we had, you know, um, other personal stuff go on, you know, when I was let's see, right before or in 2007, I lost my dad, um, abruptly. He wasn't even, he was 48 about to turn 49. And, um, he was a big, uh, just never thought that could happen. Right. It's your dad. And you never thought that could happen. And so, um, that was kind of like a lion that was in my life. Kind of, that became the, the album. There came a lion. There's like this unexpected thing that happens to you that comes against you that you have the choice to either let it consume you or you man up and, you know, you overcome. And, and I'm, I'm grateful that we did, you know, we all went through our own battles and demons and lions, so to speak. Um, but we went forward and, you know, when we lost Scott from the band, he's the one who left right at the end of, of lion, we, you know, debated maybe getting another guitar player ended up deciding to stay the four of us. Like, let's just streamline. We're the ones who know each other. And, you know, I, I'd played guitar, like I just didn't perform it in the band, but I've been playing since I was 13 and I wrote, you know, a couple of the guitar parts on there came a lion so it wasn't unheard of for me to kind of step up that side of my uh, skill set, and it was definitely a new challenge and, and and stressful for me. But when we went to do um, vessels and started doing that writing process, I was you know as much a guitar player as as I was a singer. So I was way more involved from that side, and um, things just kind of grew from there. But it was a, it was fun because it was a new challenge. But yeah, to your question there, you know, we, I mentioned to you earlier, we just, we never found that sweet spot of being able to be smart with our finances, have a manager that we trusted who would help us manage the business side, you know, cause we're young, right? We're young. We, we knew some, but um, we just weren't, we weren't like financially viable. Um, we never really, I felt like we, we Could you we have been like what went wrong there? I mean, I, I I'm not like on one level we're saying, oh, you were at the perfect time at the perfect place, but yeah. never, even at the biggest times ever, was any was there really like people making career money as individuals like that sure. wasn't happening, in, you know, <laughs> really anywhere. But particularly where you haven't, you just weren't, you were making mistakes there. You know, it's not like we were spending a lot. I think really what happened was we never landed 
I didn't feel like we landed the kind of tours that we needed to get the influx of like guarantees and the level of merch sales we we needed to kind of um, find a balance. Um, you know, honestly, to kind of make it happen when my dad passed, I was fortunate that he left me, you know, an inheritance. And, you know, I honestly used a lot of that money to float the band and invest into the band. And um, I was happy to do so, honestly. And I knew that he would have, he would have wanted me to, you know, invest that in the dreams. But my mistake around that was I wasn't um, wise at the time around that. And I didn't, I didn't understand that I needed to be really forthcoming about what we were doing, what I was willing to give versus what the band had to earn itself and how each guy had to contribute. So it ended up being in this unhealthy spot where I was the one financing the I band. Um, and that eventually led to me being trying to backtrack, right? You know, yeah, Oh, I've been yeah. doing this kind of bad. And I wasn't like letting I wasn't letting us feel the pressure of mm -hmm. the business reality that could have let us grow and have better, I mean, you know, acumen around that. And that's just, you know, my own fault. I just didn't, you know, I didn't know at the time. I thought I was doing the, the best thing I could. It's really insightful and good, good that you can reflect on that in that way. Like it's, it seems counterintuitive that you're, you're, you know, the one trying to float things, but that right. in some way inhibits natural development probably there's resentment involved i would imagine as well there was at some point i'm well well over that now you know and um you know yeah i did i learned a lot you know i just didn't i didn't have strong boundaries um and if no matter who you talk to obviously their story is gonna be different if you ask them the exact same question every guy would have a whole different story right so i can't speak for them but i can speak for me like when that you asked like what went wrong. It wasn't anything that went wrong. I just felt like the window for me personally just closed. And that, that happened because of, I got engaged, I got married, my desires changed. I didn't want to be leaving my wife. She didn't want me to be leaving her. Um, and that just got strained. And I know that's a common, that's just a common thread throughout people who have touring. What year was that? So 2010 is when I got married. So we were, we were, that was right in the, you know, the biggest like swarm of energy and, and pressure to do stuff. So it was literally like we were on tour for seven weeks. I came home for two weeks before our wedding. We got married. I had two weeks honeymoon and then I was back on the road. Yeah. And it's right. not, if I had that to do over, I'd do it again for sure. I would not have done it that way. And there was a part of me that knew that. So that's where there was a little resentment because like, we left for tour after, after the honeymoon. And I was just, was like bummed, you know, I was just like, yeah. and they were like, dude, what's wrong? Cause I'm normally so positive and, and, and inspired, you know, wow. live, live inspired is like kind of my mantra, if you will. Or, and they're like, you're not here. Like you're just, and I'm like, I know I didn't want to come on this. Like, and there was some of like, I felt like I wasn't being heard. You know, your manager's pushing you to do it. Your label's pushing you to do it all the four other guys can't do it without you. You have to say yes, or you they can't say, say yes. yes. Yeah. No, yeah. yeah. That's like, once the opportunity, like you've been working with these for this forever, when the You're opportunities the come, yep. you can't, I mean, and it's maybe it's not the healthiest thing 
of a band culture. Like of all right. the things that are healthy about, it, I really believe it's, they're the some of the coolest, best microcultures ever. Yeah. But you can't say no to opportunities when right. you're in. Once it's kicking in, you right. you can't say no. Yeah. Like that's built into like that's almost unspoken, dude. You I have know. to say yes to opportunity, like. And that's that's what I had to to realize, and I couldn't have done it on my own. Like I had those feelings, like man, I don't know if this is what I still want to be doing at this pace, and I don't know if this is my future still. But I wouldn't have been able to do it by myself. It was, you know, Kim, my wife, raised the white flag and was like, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to keep doing this. Like, I I don't see this as our future. Like, and she just asked me questions, like, is this what you want for your kids? Like do you want to be the dad who's just gone and being pushed to do more and more and touring and leaving? And she, and there was no like condemnation in those questions. They were real honest, like, Hey, Jeremy, think about our future. What do you want it to look like? And I never really, I'm saying yes so much. I'm in this thing that I've never really taken the time to truly reflect and, and kind of get into the deep parts of my heart to understand. And I was finally like, you know, you're right. There's nothing more important to me than me doing what's right for our marriage, our covenant now, so that we can have a lifelong, this is lifelong, me and you. I said, till death to us part to you, not this band, as great as it is. So that was really what happened with me. And, you know, she was carrying the, the weight of responsibility and getting a master's degree. And I was just like, blogging and drinking coffee and writing songs and going on tours here and there. Wow. What and a different not- perspective change that is. Cause like this all, like y'all were a local band called uh dead end driveway. Yeah. Not long ago. And now you're a real grown up. <laughs> you like, you were just in eighth grade. Listen to me without you. And now you're a real grown up. Yeah. Thinking about how you, what, how you'll model uh fatherhood to your children. And like that, going back to just drink coffee and work on songs all day. Yeah. All of a sudden that's kind of gone forever, man. Those, yeah. (laughs) Oh man. It was a quick, well, it seems quick, but when, when she kind of raised that white flag, so to speak, like, I don't want to keep doing this. Something has to change. Like she was genuinely hurt by, you know, that tears you apart literally and, and figuratively when you just keep leaving, you can't build the, the intimacy, the trust and, so, um, you know, it was a slow turn of a ship. I told the guys, I said, you know, I don't know what, what this means for me, but I know I have to hit pause right now. Like we have to pause everything or I have to. Um, and I had, you know, made those calls one by one and told them all. And, and I, I really honestly didn't know we kicked around all the ideas. Do we just slow down? Do we, um, just do more, more, do we do this third record? There was already wheels in motion for the third record. Um, and everybody kind of had hopes for it to be the next level. We had a new manager who was pushing us towards new producers who had had mainstream success and, you know, on and on. We, we were pushing really hard to get on this big tour with Amberlin and Switchfoot, and we were this close. And then when we missed that, that's when this conversation kind of broke, broke out between me and my wife. So, you know, it, 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 lots of prayer, lots of soul searching, lots of, well, what am I going to do next if I even do this? So, um, I told the guys, I said, I, I, you know, I'm pivoting, you know, and this was like over months that I took. Um, And I said, I understand if you guys want to keep going and do this thing without me, I give you my full blessing, like do your thing. And, and it just never happened. So that's kind of how the, how the window, just the timeframe of 
when we could do it and when it was healthy and when it made sense. I feel like we rode that as long as we could. And, and it just, the, that window closed for me. Well, yeah. well, we're going a little out of order and we yeah, won't we spend all night here, but the second record vessels is yeah. a, a, a fun one and an interesting one that I want to jump back into. Cause I was there yeah. for that, that whole record. Yeah, man, you were um, integral. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was the time when, you know, I, in my memory, I could be wrong, but from in my memory, that was the time period. And on that record, that would be one of the ones where I feel like, you know, the, all the recording of every drum and guitar and bass part, I think that I was on the computer for that. And then Absolutely. Sprinkle doing vocals um, is what I remember about that record, because I just have mm-hmm. very clear memories of these songs and how they came in and tracking the parts of Robert and especially with Dusty. I just enjoyed tracking Dusty's guitar playing as much as almost any, Mm. you know, almost as much as any that I've ever done because he was really careful about it. He was doing tapping and these, you know, he had a unique style that sounded like him that he Mm -hmm. put a lot of care into each little part of it. And I just remember you know, I remember all the track. I was I was just listening to it today. It's like, oh yeah, because I, like I know that album. Very, very, my yeah. point is, I know Inside all the yeah, I know the the details of all that album. Yeah. It's so cool. You know, I like that about music. Like even our own music, I always feel like there's so many details that people don't know. But this album, from as a fan, when I even go back to it now, oh, I know I was I I remember a lot of details about the. Mm-hmm the tracking of it, which is kind of mm-hmm. makes me feel special. And I think it turned out so good. Uh, but it was, but how was that experience for you when you did the, you know, the second record with Sprinkle? What do you oh, remember man. about that? Wonderful. You know, just amazing. And you're, you're right. You were, you're all over that record. And it feels like you were like the engine in a lot of ways, getting that you were like, we're doing this, we're doing this. Like, let's make this happen. And Aaron would like just come in and sprinkle his magic dust on, but you were kind of like, you were the one who was kind of like making this happen and, and keeping us all on schedule. And you're right. You, you really, you built the nuts and bolts, right? You were it helping so us get fun. the tones. Yeah. And, I love the detail stuff. At, yeah. Like and y'all compliment each other so well. And y'all have talked about that in your conversations. It's really sweet to, to see that y'all had a certain synergy. So we, we definitely benefited from, from you and, and, and him and how you guys, you know, just did your thing together. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Randy T from the first record. Yeah, right Randy was here. great. Randy Torres was an incredible part of that first record. There came a lion and, um, you know, cause that's what a lot of people don't realize the engineer like yourself and Randy, they're just as involved, you know, if not yet more so sometimes. Well, that's, but that, that's part of the sprinkle thing. That's really cool. Is like Randy is an amazing musician that also can engineer Mm-hmm. which allows Sprinkle to literally just let his attention go as it com- may and right. not go. Whereas other, you know, other producers just don't have that style, right. but Sprinkle would have somebody like Randy, somebody awesome that you can trust that knows about guitar or whatever. It's just like, and he Sprinkle can come in and out and just mm-hmm. like really focus when it matters. And that's part, I, th- I think that's part of what was really, you yeah, know, really cool about he, it. I think you're right. I think Sprinkle benefits from kind of having that 10,000 feet view mm-hmm. Like he can hear the song. You've we've already been working on it for hours, right? We've been doing the drums, the guitars, the vocals, maybe not even vocals yet. But he comes in and listens. He's like, "Oh, here's what we need to do on this song," and he twists it and changes it, and he flips it and and really yep. makes it something better, right? So, in a lot of ways, I think you're right. 
giving him that freedom to not have to focus on the minute details made him even stronger as producer. Yeah. And that was a difficult time for Sprinkle on that second record. And I remember that hard drive failed too. That's the story that always sticks in my mind. Do you remember the, the hard drives failed? I do remember. I'd actually Ooh. forgotten it kind of until y'all brought it up in a podcast. I was like, that's right. Like we were freaking out, but it's one of the worst up- moments ever. It's like, I think we lost seven songs, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Like something like that. <laughs> we lost a lot. Or- and we retracted it all and we did it better the second time. Right. Mm. I mean, we're going to do it better. You know it even better. So, and it was a rate, it was a hard drive that's supposed to be redundant and all this stuff. And I don't remember why it went wrong. And we tried to send mm-hmm. it to the, you know, ex- crazy drive savers yeah. and this and that. But in the yeah, meantime, yeah. we was like, well, we got, we're not going to sit here and wait. We're just going to start tracking again because what else can you do? Like, yeah. Just- so the, the blessing for us about that was we got more time in the studio. You know, we had, oh, we extended the time. Uh huh. So we'd, with Lion, we had three and a half, four weeks. It was 28 days is what we had. With with vessels, we came in and did four weeks, um, and then we went home for Christmas, and then we came back okay, in January right. and did two and a half more weeks to finish out the vocals and just some other parts and um, you know all the stuff. So we got like six and a half weeks of just that time, and that that time in the studio, like I said earlier, is just some of the best time. I think we always loved that time so much as as much if not more than anything else that's very um, cool and that the song healing was with jason vena i'm trying to remember the vocals on that or when he came in or you know, i don't exactly remember mm-hmm. um but the song instincts is the one i really really like the most so what do you mm-hmm. what's what's on your mind about instincts You know, we did some different stuff style-wise we hadn't done. There's like a, you know, there's a cool little rhythmic breakdown towards the end where we did some different like, um, almost like you work with the math a little bit. You're pushing yourself to do something a little different, a little unique. Um, but yeah, I mean, that chorus was different, kind of the way we did it. It's, um, it's not as like high flying in your face vocals as I normally do. And as a lot of the scene is, it was, for me, it was always like, how high can we sing? <laughs> you know, like how, how, can I, how high of a note can I push myself to sing? Um, but with that one, it's not like that. It's more of a mid range vocal and it's more chill. And it's, a, it just had a different feel to it. But cause I remember singing it for Aaron and I was like, did do you like that? And like, what do you think about that? He's like, yeah, it's one of the catchiest things you've ever written. <laughs> like, just so matter of fact. I was like, really? Because it was so, it was just different, you know? And so, yeah, and that was the first, that was the first single from that album. So, yeah, um, yeah it went song. to number one on the charts and we did a music video for it. And so, yeah, obviously there was something special on that song. Um, yeah, it's cool. I like the verses too. They got an, they got an interesting feel. It was it was really fun to perform live. You know, some songs you just feel a groove in live more than others. And and that was that was one that I've really always enjoyed performing. I also recall doing it was the Oh Holy Night, the Christmas uh, song, right? Or something. What when there yes. was a Christmas song we did in yes. that session too. Yes. That that's fun. I'm glad you brought that up. Cause we were on tour and we came back because we had done some of the music while we were there for vessels. Mm-hmm. 
and you helped a lot with that. Like just getting a couple of chords. We were like, Oh, we really want chords, this chord here. And you would like, Oh dude, do this. Someone was like, yes, that's the chord. Um, and so we had the music, but we didn't have time to finish the vocals. So I came back, we were touring. I don't remember what tour we were on, but came back and did the vocals with you. Really? Yeah, I, there. I was trying to remember. I just, for some reason, this really in my head, but I can't remember the details. So thank you for yeah, but <laughs> bringing them back. But yeah, I just, from, I remember that it was this Christmas song that yeah. we did. And, and it I, came, it must've come out on one of the tooth and nail Christmas samplers. Yeah. What do they call it? Rockin' Christmas or whatever it's called. But there's this one thing I'll never forget from you, you know, I said sometimes insecure vocalists need to hear a compliment and you you I don't even remember if you remember saying this but we were just listening to a take I did and you know how it gets really high at the end oh no I divine and it, it goes way up there and um you were like messing around with the pro tools rig and you just got you just said to the other bandmates it didn't I don't think you even knew I was in the room you go that guy can sing anything <laughs> that guy can sing anything and I was like, I heard it and I was like, man, that really meant a lot to me. I never forgot. I still remember <laughs> to this day. I was like, man, that felt good to hear, to hear him say that. So it was, a, yeah. it was a fun moment. Well, I mean, I don't get to do a lot of, you know, that's the thing that Sprinkle w- would yeah. do. He would do, you know, the, the magic that he would do is in additional parts that, yep. that are either missing or, or crazy rearrangements where you just make a suggestion that makes a song work all of a sudden some mm-hmm. different way you didn't think. And then vocals like he would just like not worried about the drum sounds like right. i think it's like oh he's aaron sprinkle look at these drum sounds but doesn't care like whatever it's just it'll mm-hmm. be fine and because when he gets to the vocals that's when he and it's like yeah he doesn't he doesn't need help tuning them he doesn't need help doing anything he just right. like stay away create the space for the vocalist and make sure and then and that's when he gets his highest level you know of engagement so right. um so I didn't get you know it's not like I did got to do right. vocals a lot in that in that setting, but I did I do remember that. But because I mean that song that's like a crazy that's a show off high voice song, <laughs> you know like yeah, that you, you know you sing with that high voice is it's like to me that's just it's a it's so I don't know how to even explain it, but that high voice singing like I feel like it's above I don't even like it's it it's just like this it doesn't sound like the way I would picture myself singing in a way that I can't even relate to it. And I'm right. really impressed by it. And it's obviously a popular style of singing, of course, right, but right. it's just like, wow, what, like it just always strikes me when people sing super high, it just feels so yeah. notable in there yeah. to do it. Cause you, it, you anticipate, well, he's not gonna be able to hit the, what if he can't hit the notes? Like right, that right. tension's built into the, that song. It's like, yeah. he's not gonna be able to hit that. Right. It's, you're How's right. Gonna do it? It's like a story. Is this climax yeah. going to work? Yeah. You know, he won't not. be able to do it. He starts like when they do the national anthem and they start to, you're like, oh, they're not going to make, they won't be able to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it is weird, man. Cause there's something, I don't know exactly what drives guitarists, you know, like, like dusty or whatever. I just want to make it as pretty as possible. Or if I want to make it as memorable as possible, but there was something in, in it when I was developing my voice, it, it, it kept like taking like pride in, Oh, I can go higher. I can go higher. I can go higher. And like, kept stretching my voice to do that. And I, you're right. It was just a part of the scene at the time, right? Like it was just a thing. Um, so it is, it was fun to do that note and be, and just be able to nail it. Then you have the pressure of having to do it live, um, which we did play that song a couple of times live. And it was, it was a lot of fun. Did it in Germany at Christmas rock night. Um, do you know that festival? Uh, I've heard of it, but no, I don't know. Oh, you never played it. No, I, I figured y'all would have played that one. And then uh, Christmas rock night in, in Germany. 
Um, and then we played it at Unsilent Night, which was one of Zemer's Plano yep. Atlanta, or Dallas shows. I so. got that in the labeled group. Is they said it was. Let me see what who they said you played with with ACB Ivory Line O Sleeper and mm-hmm. Bell Epoque. I yep. don't know who that is, but yep. um, 2011 that would have been Unsilent mm-hmm. Night. Yep, that was a fun one. One of the only times we played that song live, but we loved it. Me and Dusty love Christmas songs, so we're just we're so thrilled with the way that song came out. Like I couldn't I couldn't be happier. So that that was a real special add on, if you will, to the to the vessels process. That's awesome. And mm-hmm. so it you know it didn't go too much longer after that. The what do you remember about the music business and the climate changing entirely there? I just. I just remember that we got a, you know, we got a new manager who we clicked with, who we felt like um, it was outer loop. You, you guys were on outer loop management. We were with Yogi yep. um, and uh, it felt like we had some things in place, right? You, you know, you felt like things were lining up and then we were on a good tour. I think we were on the scream it like you mean it tour, which was one of the biggest ones we, we landed and it was going really well. And then the first week sales disappointed everybody. And we had that talk and I remember going out in the back alley of the venue and, and them just being like, Yogi was like, well, the numbers came in. It's not, it's not not great. And we're just like, and we're thinking like, again, we didn't, we didn't put all of our stock in the numbers. Right. But to hear someone kind of be disappointed in you. Yeah. It was just like a big, like air let out of the room kind of moment where it felt like we, we felt like we did what we came to do. Right. We came, we did what we came to do. We left it all in the field, so to speak. Like, I feel like we took our craft to the next level with vessels. Like we pushed ourselves musically. We put out a bunch of different sounding songs, styles we hadn't done before. You know, the lyrics were deeper. They were more raw. They were more vulnerable. Um, And then to have it not feel like it was received as well was, was just tough. You know, and that's just part of the business, right? Um, but that was kind of like a moment where you. But you don't people stop buying. I mean, that was the yeah. time when everybody's like, "Wait, wait, I'm not buying." We talk right. about buy records. Yeah, that was yeah. when that happened, though. Between right. record one and two, that's right. Everybody went from, "Oh, I got to go to Best Buy and get this." To why would you buy that? <laughs> I know it's just tough, you know. And I don't have any money if I wanted to or whatever. Like you know <laughs> what I mean? It was the music. It was like the technology had changed it, right? And nobody had any money right then that was when people didn't have any money yeah so you know we we did some great tours we did this the scream it like you mean it tour and that was just a great great one of the you know most successful tours we'd ever been a part of um but you wouldn't have made any money on that anyway no i mean we were making we were the second band on the bill um you know making just enough to get by but we had a, a great experience right it was an incredible experience it was again it was an honor to be on that bill and be a part of that group and that scene. Um, we did a couple, we did a couple cool things after that. Uh, we did this festival in Sweden that uh, it was called Jesus rock festival in Sweden that we couldn't even believe. We're like, you want us to come to Sweden and you're going to pay all our tickets and you give us this amount of guarantee. You sure? They're like, uh, yeah, you know, it, it's kind of those surreal moments, you know? And, that was one of my, that was probably my favorite thing we did as a band. It was just a really special trip. Um, got to tour Stockholm at night and walk around. We had a, a local friend who we made through the internet who was like, I will put you up at my place and I'll show you around. He was a photographer and vi- videographer. 
shout out David Varnberg if you're ever listen. Um, anyway, so it, he helped make that a really special time, and um, just the the people and the kids there in Sweden were just so sweet and engaged and just thankful for a band coming. You know what I mean? Like they were truly thankful to have a band that came all the way from the U S and like they treated you almost like with that level of respect and reverence Mm -hmm. that you're like, man, this is, this is just almost too much. So it was was a really, that was a really special trip. Um, But we were just, you know, we're trying, you know, you put out the album, you're trying to get as many good tours as you can. And like I kind of mentioned earlier, we, we kind of, uh, we we felt like this tour with Amberlynn and Switchfoot was going to be the thing, right? <laughs> and we were pushing so hard and I kind of knew Joey from Amberlynn. So I texted him. I was like, dude, come on, we're trying to get on this tour. And he was like, oh, really? I didn't even know you were trying to get on the tour. And he said, I'll do what I can. We didn't get on the tour. They put this other band on there. And, you know, the rest, that's kind of like the last thing we were striving for, I think is a good word for it. We were trying to make it happen and it just didn't happen. And, then, and Amber Lynn was the band that's like, if you had to say it, it would be like Amber Lynn could be the next Amber Lynn could have been a thought. I mean, people have yeah. said that or like, that's a thought yeah. that, that would have made sense there. So, sure. you know, that would have been on the right track, I think. And in that, in that mm-hmm. same way, ACB and Beloved could have been the next Under Oath. It's like, wow. Like, I know from the label's point of view, mm-hmm. you're thinking, well, this works and this works and people like this. But yeah. that must have been deflating to not be able to realize that. Yeah. And. One thing we always wanted to be a part of that we never got to was the Tooth and Nail tour. Like when we kind of started, I don't know that that had already kind of stopped, and I was like, man, that was that was just such a cool community vibe that Tooth and Nail was doing their own tour, and it was just it, the kids were coming out. It was there were good shows. One of the best shows I went to. I did. I went to the Solid State tour in 2004 with Under Oath, Dead Poetic, Beloved, Haste the Day. Yeah. And one, uh, Norma Jean. Norma Jean. Yeah. And I was like, that was crazy. Yeah. Insane. I, and I didn't even know who Underworld, Under Oath was at the time. I came to see Beloved and Norma Jean and, and Dead Poetic. But when I saw Under Oath. That's when they just got Spencer. And I saw Under Oath perform and I was like, they are, they're, they were just, they were blowing up right there. Yeah. That was crazy. We were on the road at the same time and doing some similar venues and stuff. You'd hear, you'd hear like, yeah, well, the Solid State tour was here last night, mm-hmm. and they sold out, so they started the show early and then sold out again and did a late show. So they were yeah. doing like they would play. T- they would just start the show early, sell it's a whole nother set of tickets, do it again. It was like Norma Jean sold, you know, just you know, five hundred shirts tonight or yeah. whatever. You'd hear stuff yeah. about that tour, but it was yeah, that was. I mean, what a bill that is. Yeah, so great. That was a fun one. Yeah. That, th- that show, and there was one other one when I was thinking about my favorite kind of tooth and nail shows I've ever seen was um, I went to see Acidies Burn when they were playing Son, I Loved You at Your Darkest, and supporting them was Me Without You playing Catch Rust the Foxes. Wow. It, it was absolutely incredible. But those are two of my favorite albums ever. Not just them, just ever. And um, yeah, that was, that was pretty much unbeatable. Because that's my favorite Me Without You album. That's my favorite as ACB album. So being able to see them live in Deep Ellum. I don't remember the name of the club. I just remember it was in Deep Ellum. It was really special. Pretty small club. So you feel that intimate, yeah. you know, man, it's really cool, cool that I'm here um, seeing this moment. So that's very cool. Memorable one. And so, right, you know, right after that, you know, you're going to call it quits. 
basically? How did that go down? It was just that. It was never like we shut the door. We didn't break up. That's what's kind of weird. It was like the band who never broke up. <laughs> like we never had that drama or I'm I'm done or I mean I told them I'm I'm out, but I never shut the door. Like we started writing songs for album three. And you know, I was in San Antonio at that time with finishing my wife was finishing grad school. She finished, we moved back to Tyler. So me and Dusty were in Tyler together again. And our, our bass player at the time, Shane, had moved to Tyler. And we had a couple of writing sessions. So we kind of had our wheels spin a little bit. It just never really, nothing really ever happened, you know, on a substantial level. That's a tough time because that, that was the time when it was just, there was nothing to do. There was like, it wasn't, there weren't, there wasn't much to be doing in 2011. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like it, if you could survive, it was just to not go away but there wasn't much to there just wasn't much going yeah there wasn't so. much to do and that would have been the time and it's not i don't think you really i don't i'm not hearing as you make business mistakes but you shouldn't have even been able to really make any money until like if everything was going good after your second record and you had these yeah. touring opportunities you would have be yeah. you would begin to headline at that point but there wasn't nobody nothing was good then so it's not yeah. that wasn't gonna happen anyway Mm-hmm. Um, to any way that you could have probably made a living on or anything right. like that. So that that's like kind of really unfortunate because it was just, there was just a, a meager time. So to headline yeah. then it wouldn't, and to sell records then just wasn't, yeah, it wasn't the, the cards for, for almost anybody. Yeah. And I didn't, I've never even really thought about it that from the macro level. Right. Cause I was so focused on what was going on in my personal life and what was going on with the band I never really heard it, but it's kind of, it's kind of interesting and comforting to hear you say that. Cause like, no, the whole scene was just kind of deflated yeah. at that time. So it was kind of a natural time to step away and pivot into something else, you know? So, um, it's kind of how it went down. Yeah. That's, it's, it's interesting to think about the time and whether it would have been better earlier or later, but you hit the right mm-hmm. time. And you had some amazing experiences like, Oh, absolutely. So like, it seems like everything did kind of work out the right way, but what did you, what did you get into and have been doing since I last saw you? <laughs> so basically I went back to school. I was like, what am I going to do? I'm going to go back to school. And, um, you know, I'd already done two years at, at school here at UT Tyler. Um, and I stopped when, when the iron was hot with the band, I was like, I'm going to stop and do this and kind of, you know, pursue this dream, if you will, which it was a dream. And so I did it for as long as it made sense. And, to your point, I feel like we we did a lot of things that we never felt like we would, right? We toured internationally. We did three three tours to Australia. We did one to Sweden and went to Germany, toured the U.S. countless times and got to play with awesome bands that we respected, like you guys and As Cities Burn. We got to play with them a couple of times, and that was like a dream come true for me and, you know, countless others. But um, went back to school. My wife had already gotten her master, so it was like, what am I going to do to you know, to catch up, if you will. And I went back to school and got my degree in human resource development, um, HRD for sure. I knew I wanted to be an, a developing people, like helping make people grow. I'm, I'm all about that. So I've been working to do that. And so basically I'm, I'm, at, I'm at a corporate job where, where I create e-learning courses that we use to train our people from, you know, all across the company. We have 17,000 people, employees. And 
I'm one of the one of the leaders who help create that training content that helps people, you know, grow and engage with their jobs and better, easier, simpler ways. So that's what I've been doing for over eight years. But was that how was that transition for you, both emotionally and like, did your did being in a band help you be a leader in this in this career? Like, how did that trend? How did those how did that translate emotionally and technically? Yeah, I love that question. Yes. So. It's been really cool to see how my experience with the band and those kind of skills I developed being with the guys kind of, you know, trying to be a leader. I don't know if they'd say the same thing or not, but, you know, trying to be a leader, a good man, a man of God and kind of lead this group and into health. Right. I cared about the health of our souls and the health of our finances and, you know, the excellence level we were doing as a band and, that has, it really has translated. And it's funny because I still use my voice, right? I do voiceovers all the time. I, I edit people's voices all the time because I'm recording them and putting them into e-learning modules and courses. And so it's funny how, you know, things you, you kind of like turn your skill 90 degrees to the right and you're using it in a new way. Um, I was singing before, but now I'm doing voiceovers of training courses wow. and, and designing. So I'm still doing creative stuff. Um, and, you know, I still play guitar and I still play piano and I, I love to do that. Sing every single day, make up goofy songs for my kids all the time. Um, but yeah, it's helped me having that, you know, that experience in that brotherhood and, and learning from each other, sharpening each other, you know, as iron sharpens iron has helped me in this more of a leadership role here. But the to the earlier part of your question, the emotional transition from the band to, to something else was really hard and it was really long. Like it felt wow. like turning a, a huge ship, right? I mean, I didn't know. I didn't want to be messing it up or missing the call or whatever. You know, I, I didn't want to give up something that was so valuable without knowing. And it was, it was what I'd known for seven years or whatever, you know, pedal the metal band for seven years straight. Always. Yes. Right. It's yes, 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 yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was super, you know, intentional and took my time and, you know, poured out my heart, asked for prayer all over the place. And from my mom and, you know, my friends and brothers and even the guys in the band, like I knew that if I stepped away, it meant so much to them. Right. You know, so I, I didn't take that lightly at all. It was a heavy, heavy decision and time, but it, it, I definitely felt like it was the right thing. And then the thing that I had to do again for my marriage, which it's like I knew in my heart where my values were. My marriage was number one and the band was right below. But it's like when those two things came into conflict, the band was always winning out. <laughs> yes, more and, of them. And, yeah. I was, and, I, and she had to call me out on that. She's like, you're saying one thing, but you're doing another. And I really had to you know, mature and go, no, my actions have to match these values and priorities. So that's, that's what I did, you know? Um, so... You know, the sad thing about it, I don't, I don't think he'd mind me sharing, but the sad thing about it is Wes went through a similar, we were on tour with y'all. He went through a similar situation and, and unfortunately it didn't end up the same. Like his marriage, you know, fell apart. And I'm not saying it was the band's fault, but him having to be gone a lot was that it was one of the driving factors. Obviously his wife was young and, there was obviously there's lots of stuff there, but you know, she was saying similar things to what my wife was saying. I don't, this isn't working for me. You know, like 
I don't want you to be going going away. And then when you're coming back, you're coming home with basically nothing, right? And, and you're not really contributing. That's a hard <laughs> truth. And But deep down, and you know this, you think th- they'll be able to handle it. Like, I hear what they're saying that they don't want me, this is hurting them, but they're fine. You know, they believe in me and they support me. Mm-hmm. But it's like, it to me, I think guys are thick-headed. It took my wife literally breaking down, bawling her eyes out in the car after saying, I just don't think I can do this anymore. She just lost it. And it took that level of emotional outpouring in reality to like shake me. Break. No, this is a real, like this is a crossroads moment. Like if I keep going on this path and ignoring her reality, I'm not going to have a wife. Like is basically where it went. And I had, I had walked through that with Wes already intimately we had spent hours and hours in the van talking and, you know, praying and he, you know, tried to reconcile the best he could. So, you know, I hated that that happened for him, but I think he was really happy that he's like, dude, don't let this happen to you. You know? So there was some, there was some heavy, heavy stuff that went on. That's all really, really, you know, it's it's cool to hear you reflect on it, you know, and how those two things, how those intersect. It's really a spectrum of like, I mean, there's all kind of people who make rash decisions for girlfriends or wives yeah. in ways that don't make sense later. And then there's, mm-hmm. you know, there, and so there's every me- method of people who don't really speak up for themselves or, mm-hmm. you know, ignore each other's reality. I heard you say yep. that. That's like definitely... There's, a, there's every combination of that. So I always find it fascinating, but thank you for, for being willing to share. So. Oh yeah, for sure. And this conversation has just really zoomed by, like I've totally lost track of time. So it's just, it's really good to see you again, like here. It's just like, it's very natural to just catch up like this. So I've, yeah. I've quite enjoyed it. Yeah, man. I jammed the question today just to get myself in the <laughs> right headspace. That's my album for y'all. I, I love that. album. So when, it, when we were recording, there came a lion. The two albums I listened to the most were The Question and Fair, Best Worst Case Scenario. Oh, wow. That's Those cool. two albums, you know, and they're very different, right? One's like folk, indie, pop rock, and y'all are, you know, Emory. But that was fueling me, man. So I've really enjoyed it, enjoyed our conversation. And I'm I'm just really excited and honored. Kind of felt like it came out of left field to be asked to be on here. So I'm really Really yeah, glad it comes up a lot and it comes up a out. lot in the Facebook group. So I was, I'm thrilled to do it. I mean, there's tons of like really great conversations that I just haven't had with people yet. But to me, it's like, well, I'll, I'll talk to Jeremy. I'll talk. I mean, in my head, it's like, oh, it's got, I have so many people that I'll right. get to talk to them, but you know, it's just one at a time. <laughs> yeah. There's, like it's yeah. really no limit to it. But I'm, I mean, for sure, this is an episode that people have been, you know, wanting to hear. And I'm glad that we finally that- got the chance to do it. That's really encouraging. And that's something I wanted to say. Like, I, I still am blown away. You know, the fans are what make you be able to do it, right? So our fans along the, you know, over the years and even now, like, I'm still blown away that we've been able to get still, you know, 18,000, 20,000, 25,000 plays a month on Spotify. And we haven't put anything out, if anything, out in 12 years. Yeah. Like, and that doesn't happen just, to everybody, you know. There's it just blows my mind. Away. Yeah, it blows my mind. And and I noticed that when you, um, I guess Aaron used one of our songs, Be Still and Breathe, on his Moon Traveling podcast. And then you guys played that, like you re-aired that same thing. And we saw a jump in our numbers. Like we went awesome. up to like 35000 a month. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is insane. 
So a labeled he, bump. It's real. Yeah, uh, he, I saw it in Beloved because they had such little, tiny numbers. Like a few years ago, compared to like it's just yeah. taking time people to re-remember them. Yeah. But the, when the labeled episodes and when Furnace Fest hit, you see Beloved's numbers just go both. It's like, been cool to see yeah. that. It's like that, that little things can have an effect in a way yeah. that's, it's, you know, it's gross. But that yeah. Spotify's been so cool because, like, people are, the algorithms are helping resurface oh, yeah. stuff that you would have forgotten about. And so that, mm-hmm. it also helps cream rise to the top. And there's mm-hmm. some bands that's like, man, this band's so good. How could they not get more views? But overall, the algorithm is helping people in some ways that I kind of think is really cool. So, it is really you know, cool. your name shows up with Amberlynn and other stuff in ways that people can find it. So I'm really yeah. glad that the music lives on, even though you're not in this as a career or anything like that. Right. Never happened. But the music... Yeah, you know, that's right. Is influencing people today. People listen to you and Jason Vina sing today. Mm-hmm. Tons of people were listening to that today and will right. tomorrow. So, yeah, you know, very cool. And my son, who's four and a half now, he gets to hear a song. He goes, Dad, is that you singing? I'm like, Heck yep. yes, it is. <laughs> and he loves it. But yeah, thanks to all the fans, all the people out there are still listening. It, it means the world. It's so humbling and, and just awesome to even know that, that y'all are still getting something out of the music. It means everything to us. That's what we always wanted. For real so great well thank you jeremy thanks matt been great catching up man yeah thank you for listening to this episode of labeled my name is neil and i'm from cedar falls iowa and i've been listening since 2018 a favorite scene moment of mine is when emery let me create their first profile and upload walls demo.mp3 onto myspace labeled is produced by matt carter and knucklebreaker productions at compound three recordings Editing and sound design by Seth Thompson. Editorial oversight by Jim Worthen and Adam Scatula. Brand and design direction by Joel Buchelman. Our production manager is Katie Franson. Executive producers, Brandon Ebel and Matt Carter. Additional support from Marshall Frimuth, Tyson Paoletti, and Anna Merzaglocki. See you next time. Something It's just to sing oh.